0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the show, Helen Thompson, the expert on geopolitics, joins us to discuss why the world seems to be on the brink of global conflict once again, and how we got here. Today's episode focuses on Helen Thompson's new book, Disorder, taking a wide-angle look at the decades of geopolitical history that have fed into our current global outlook, one which now, of course, is dominated by headlines of war and is also framed by the impending emergency of the climate crisis. Our host for the discussion is Andrew Muller, journalist, author, and voice of Monocle 24's The Foreign Desk podcast. Here's Andrew with more.
1: A book bearing the title Disorder probably has a case to make at any point in human history. A book subtitled Hard Times in the 21st Century has picked a timely moment for its release. The author of Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, Helen Thompson, is Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge, a columnist for the New Statesman, and was a regular contributor to the Talking Politics podcast. Uh, Helen, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Pleasure to be here, Andrew. The introduction to your book starts out wondering about 2016, which will be remembered on both sides of the Atlantic as as the year of the Brexit referendum, the year of the election of Trump. Um, Does 2016 well, thinking back six years now start to seem to you like maybe one of those years, like a 1989 or an 1848 or one of those th- one of those years where everything got kind of upended?
2: It does, in a way. I've actually been thinking about this question um, the last few days because, obviously, at the time, 2016 seemed such a, a dr- set of dramatic moments. In a way, I think that we shouldn't have been so shocked by what happened in 2016, but the reality is that we were. I think if we then, like, look now uh, and look what's happened since, and most obviously the pandemic and now the war in Ukraine, then in some sense it seems just sort of the beginning of a moment when lots of things started to happen that, in some sense, history as we were experiencing it, speeded up. And any illusions that I think that there were left in the West that, in some sense, history had ended and the big dramatic changes were over has just gone away. So I think it's actually now in a way harder to get 2016 into a clear perspective than it, than it, than it was in the time, than, than it was at the time. And I was quite conscious, I think really by the time that I would finished writing um, the book in the, in the spring of last year, that actually my starting place of like why I wanted to do it had passed And that what I was trying to grapple with at the end of the book was another world. Uh, another world, which was in part actually, or was, was at least really, as much about the energy transition as it was about the pandemic.
1: I, I wanted to ask about that, and you do acknowledge this in the introduction as well. That you you, you start out writing a book, which is a, a you know grand survey of our times and how we got here, uh, and then there is this extraordinarily disruptive uh, moment—the beginning of the pandemic in in two thousand sorry, time has stopped having any meaning, 2020 that was. Did you get to a point ever of just thinking, oh God, what have I started doing? Uh, I have to either abandon this entirely or rethink it completely.
2: I did. I spent two weeks pretty much in that headspace. <laughs> <laughs> and in the, in, the, um, in the second half of March uh where I, I my my literal thought processes where I've been trying to write a book that I'm behind with, which is a history of the present moment and how we got here, and now the present moment has changed out of all recognition. So what on earth is the point of this of this book? What changed, I think, and made me realise that I could continue, was that quite a number of the things that happened, including in that very first month of the pandemic when it hit Western countries in March two thousand and um, twenty seemed to reinforce some of the stories that I was telling rather than being completely at odds with them. I mean, just to give a few examples, the fact that the oil price crashed in March of 2020, the fact that there was another huge financial crisis in March 2020, which I think in some sense we've kind of forgotten about. A little bit later, the fact that the German Constitutional Court came back with a decision that it did on the constitutionality in Germany of the European Central Bank's quantitative easing programme. A lot of tensions in the East Mediterranean in the summer of 2020. So although the pandemic, its possible like relationship to the economic ecosystem of the world or the ecosystem of the world economy was not a story that I'd in any way considered, it did seem that the fallout of all this was part of a continuum that I could still say something about and still try to give a long history to.
1: Because what I'm wondering is, if we take as a starting point the, the, the title of the book, Disorder, and it may be a common mistake that humans have made throughout history, that just as... There is, you know, national exceptionalism in that everybody thinks their country is exceptional for some reason. Is there a historical exceptionalism as well that we think we, we who are here now, we protagonists of reality, uh, are the generation for whom everything will suddenly be okay, will solve all the problems? And 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 I also wonder if that was amplified because just thinking of myself as a child of the very late sixties, always looking forward to the twenty first century in a new millennium that was going to be somehow the future? Um, and there was an implicit assumption there that everything will basically be fine.
2: I think this is a really interesting question. I think there's two different junctures, one of which is the one that you've just described, where there is a sense in which the future is not only going to be all right, but the future is going to turn out much better. And I think the 60s you know, like, is one of them, and in some sense it's that's encapsulated... Um, at the very end of the, of the decade, um, by you know, human beings reaching the moon and the sense that actually a new technological era is going to begin. That then that technological era is actually in some sense going to transform the 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 conditions of human beings being confined to Earth. And that turns out obviously to be nothing like the way in which the nineteen seventies and the nineteen eighties work out. You know, if there's a great hope. About technology at the end of the 60s, because of getting to the moon. The 70s is actually about energy, you know, much more about the underlying, you know, material source on which all technological development ultimately, or most technological development anyway, ultimately um, rests. And then I think in the 90s or after 1989, but I don't think it really takes off until the middle of the 90s because the the first years of the 90s are actually pretty difficult in Europe in particular because of the Balkan. Wars uh, and the turbulence within the the European monetary system that makes it look like the um, the single currency for the European Union was going to be abandoned and that turned out obviously not to be the case. But I think a different kind of historical exceptionalism took hold then, in the sense that not just the Fukuyama's idea that you know that history in a grand sense had come to um, an end, but that an age of geopolitics had come to an end with the end of the cold war and that the new world was going to be one of you know what commonly got called globalization um in which geopolitics didn't really have a have a part that in some sense if geopolitics is about geography and politics ultimately the globalization was the idea that geography was being transcended both economically and and, and politically so I do think that a different form of historical exceptionalism took hold from the middle of the the 90s and that in some sense what we in the West anyway have been doing since, you can argue, when uh, have been waking up from that illusion and realising that actually much less geopolitically changed um, than we thought, and particularly um, the idea that geography uh, in relation to russia's position in eurasia including the consequences for russia's position in europe for the independent states that stood from the 1990s between germany and russia was a, a lot more complicated world than I think that anybody really wanted to get to grips with, or most people anyway, wanted to get to grits with in the 90s.
1: Well, I mean, th- that brings us, of course, to what is now happening where Russia is concerned. And and just as I guess, if you start writing a book about the grand scheme of the world and this enormous disruptive event occurs, that's, that's one kind of nightmare. But releasing such a book uh, at around the time of another disruptive uh, event might seem like another kind of nightmare. But Actually, it seems what is happening in Ukraine in some respects kind of an endpoint to a lot of what you're arguing in the book. That you know that some of these things are immutable, and we spent a few decades pretending they weren't.
2: The book actually came out on the day of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which in lots of ways made me very uncomfortable because of the tragedy of what was happening in Ukraine. I would say though that I think that the arguments that I make in the first part of the book, the geopolitical politics part of the book would have been taken I think quite a lot less seriously if it weren't for what had happened uh, and particularly the insistent or my insistence on the relationship or the importance let's say of ge- the geopolitics of energy in the way in which that shaped the European Union's relationship with Russia since the dissolution of the, the Soviet Union indeed actually for that matter um, before it. I think it's one of those moments now where it seems obvious in some sense that um, that there was an ongoing geopolitics to Europe around Russia's position um, after the end of the Cold War, and it seems obvious um, that the European Union's energy dependency on Russia has been a, a a huge constraint on way in which the European Union has been able to deal with Putin's led Russia. But I promise you that having started making these arguments like when I was talking on Talking Politics when it first started. Um, you know, In the past, I'm more resistant, shall we say, to making these arguments than I've done over the last few weeks.
1: I mean, that, that energy dependence that you mentioned that constrains the EU where Russia is concerned, and it is significant. I think it's 40% of the EU's gas, 30% of its oil comes from Russia. Is it your view that that situation has been allowed to happen because of I mean call it what you will complacency laziness or, or was there a sincere if clearly misguided belief that making Russia a trading partner incorporating it somehow within the EU's economic framework would make it uh, you know a more reliable ally a you know in many respects less obnoxious country was there actually a case to be made for that
2: I think that this is a quite complicated question and has to be in a way separated out between Germany and other European countries and including within the European itself the views that tended to prevail at the European Commission. So if we go back to like the the very early 2000s, there already is a concern in some European countries and certainly in the European Commission about energy dependency and gas dependency in particular on, on Russia. So I don't think anybody can say that the European Union that nobody in the European Union ever had an idea that this was a problem. They clearly did. And they went through quite a lot of different moves in order to try to reduce that dependency. And they were very optimistic for you know, a while about Azerbaijan um, being, uh, being um, an alternative. There was quite a lot of enthusiasm in some countries, though notably not really, I think, in Germany or France ever, for using Turkey as a... Um, a transit state, almost like a portal for bringing in gas, both from the Caspian Sea from Azerbaijan, but also from the Middle East, including um, Iran. And these, the arguments for 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 those initiatives, and there were significant initiatives around um, this, were very much cast in terms of breaking dependency upon Russian um, gas. So I think. One of the issues is, is that it's actually a lot of much, much easier said than done, even if we were talking about you know, 20 years ago as opposed to the situation now. If we take Germany and attitudes in Germany, I think it's more complicated because if we go back to the 1970s when um, the German Chancellor Willy Brandt was pursuing the policy that came to be called Ostpolitik, normalising relations with the, the Soviet Union, I think that the gas pipelines that were starting to be built at that time to complement the oil one that had been built um, earlier was in some sense seen as the material foundations of of this Ostpolitik. In that sense, that creating economic some economic interdependence between then the Soviet Union uh, and Germany, West Germany, and later that transferred over into between Russia and Germany was a good thing, and it played into you know some of the. Historical ties between Russia and Germany that go back to the creation of the German state in the in, in um in 1870. And I think that as it became clear that the issue of how that gas was transported from Russia to Germany was an acute geopolitical question for Ukraine because the pipelines post-the Soviet Union went through. Ukraine then the argument that Germany was doing what was in its commercial interest and what was good for developing you know reasonable relations or maintaining reasonable relations with uh, Russia started to become an argument that could be used to bat off criticism about agreeing to the Nord Stream pipelines that were aimed at, by Putin at cutting Ukraine out of the transit of gas into into northern Europe And then at the same time, because the first person in Germany who pursued that policy, Gerhard Schröder, the the chancellor uh, of the red-green government that was in power between 1998 and 2005, joined the shareholders committee of Nord Stream pretty soon after he left office. The question also then became entangled up with the fact that certain individuals in Germany could, shall we say, enrich themselves um, by the relationship. With the energy relationship with Russia and uh, and and then and indeed there was some talk at the beginning of this year about Schroeder joining the, the, the board of Gazprom. So I think in the case of 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 Germany, there's a lot of different things going on, and that it's quite hard to get to the bottom of what was absolutely, you know, constituting the the basis of the judgment that this is what 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 Germany um needed to be um doing. I think part of it was naivety. In the sense is that they really wanted to believe that there weren't geopolitical ramifications to Nord Stream um, in particular, because it was, but they wanted to believe that because it was convenient.
1: People very often do believe what is convenient for them to believe at a given moment, though. No,
2: absolutely. And, and if we just, you know, leaving aside Schroeder's you know, motives, if you look at it from Merkel's point of view, who made the decision on the second Nord Stream pipeline, you can see why, you know, a German chancellor might be worried about transit through Ukraine because Ukraine and Russia were engaging in standoffs about the pipeline including the transit fees that the Russians had to pay to Ukrainians, whether the Ukrainian government was doing what was necessary to um, maintain it or not, whether the Ukrainians were siphoning off gas that was supposed to be going elsewhere for them for them, for themselves. If you could have a pipeline that went into the Baltic Sea that was free of Russian Ukrainian politics from a German point of view, obviously there were some advantages there was adva- there were advantages to that.
1: But that being the case, does does Russia's behaviour this last month or so make any sense within that framework? Because however annoyed they might have been about having to pay transit fees for the Ukraine pipeline, isn't this ultimately isolating them as an energy power? Nord Stream 2 suspended the United States, talking about banning imports of Russian oil and gas, which I know isn't that big a deal for the United States in particular, but it does, I guess, create pressure for other countries to make the same decision. Is there any, I guess, you know, entirely rational analysis in that respect for what Russia's doing?
2: No, I don't think you can attribute energy motives to what Putin has um, done. I mean, I think you can say that part of Putin's long-term strategy for weakening Ukraine's position was to, very much to use the pipeline issues. And you know, he was determined, it failed at the end, that Ukraine was going to be entirely cut out of the transit of gas into Europe by 2019. And he had to agree at the end of 2019 to extend it until at least 2024. And he knew that the moves that he was making weakening Ukraine's position economically. I think that it's pretty clear now that Putin wants to, you know, destroy an independent Ukrainian state and he wants to destroy any idea of Ukrainian nationhood and in its own terms, energy is irrelevant to those aims. It's just a me- it's just a means by which he weakened Ukraine's position earlier. I think though, in terms of like whether Russia's really in a geopolitical sense, on the energy side, weakened by what's happened, I think that's much more open to question. I mean, Nord Stream two might be dead, but Nord Stream one is still you know, transporting gas into European countries every day, uh, and the prices that Europeans are paying for those gas is much higher. The oil that's still being bought in Europe is at a higher price. So essentially, you know, Europe is filling Moscow's war coffers with the energy revenues it sends there, and you know, in a world that is know, quite fundamentally different in this respect from the 1990s in Russia is less dependent on those exports to Europe than it was because it now has a big Asian market. It has a pipeline Hmm. both for oil and gas going to China. Uh, India is still very keen on buying Russian energy exports. Indian energy demand is still growing quite significantly. So Russia has options, even if European Union countries could very quickly, and I don't think that they can, stop buying large quantities of Russian um, energy exports.
1: Let's look back at the book uh, itself as a bit of a guide to how we got here, if you like. Um, You isolate, I guess, what we might think of as three theatres of disorder, geopolitics, especially energy geopolitics, uh, the global economy, uh, and politics, specifically in Western democracies. How did you come to isolate those three themes?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I actually wanted initially to do something that was a bit to add a fourth one which would be more focused on culture um, and realise that it, it was actually too difficult to... It's not that I didn't think that culture was important, I do. It's just that it was too difficult to tell a story that was interactive between the different themes, the different spheres, if that was involved um, as well. So I think I started from the idea in some sense that when I was thinking about Brexit which obviously you know, I had a particular interest in as a, as a British citizen in, in 2016, I had a sense that it was an economic moment, a constitutional moment for the United Kingdom, obviously including for the Union of the United Kingdom, and that it was a geopolitical moment, and that I didn't think it was possible to try to think about Brexit in without taking seriously all of those three realms, if you like. And I think in some ways, I moved from that idea, you know, as a starting place more broadly into thinking, well, what else could be done by trying to tell um, the story, a story from, 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 the, from those three um, different um, positions. And I was particularly struck by the way in which some things that to do with Brexit Um, like the divergence between the British economy and the Eurozone economy from from 2012 were tangled up with things that you would think of as having nothing to do with Brexit, like high oil prices and the way in which the European Central Bank and the Bank of England responded to high oil prices in, in 2011. So I was pretty clear from the beginning that there was a pretty complicated set of interactions going on and the disruption in some sense was like moving around between um the the, the spheres and that you couldn't understand it, any single thing by itself without connecting it to what else was going on
1: i mean there was a massive cultural aspect to brexit though wasn't there or is there, is there an argument that the that the economics and the politics you're talking about are what drives that that cultural schism
2: Well, I think that this is where, in the case of Brexit, it gets very complicated because I think there are two basic drivers that are going on. One is on the economic side, and it's really precipitated by the Eurozone crisis um, and the fallout of the Eurozone crisis for the UK when the United Kingdom wasn't in the Eurozone, and yet it possessed the financial centre of the Eurozone um, in London. Uh, and it was obviously a full member of the, the single of the European Union's um, single market. And it so happened that the Eurozone crisis started really in late 2009, in the same year in which the Lisbon Treaty was finally ratified, and that there was a set of issues around the, the ratification of the Lisbon Treaty in, in the United Kingdom that were pretty difficult, not least because the Conservative Party that was going to win or be the largest party after the general election following year, had not only um, been opposed to ratifying the Lisbon Treaty um, through the House of Commons, but had been opposed to the substance of the Lisbon Treaty um, itself. And so what had happened in the United Kingdom was a set of quite difficult constitutional questions around the democratic legitimation of EU treaties was playing out at the same time as the economic questions were playing out. Now, if we just then concentrate on the, the treaty um, issue i think part of that was very much a constitutional question that right the way back to the united kingdom's accession to the european community as it then was is the issue of like how did the british constitutional system work with eu membership was 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 a muddle let's just let, let's just say it wasn't mm. a muddle that was necessarily going to be destructive of the uk's membership but it was going to keep causing it problems and if you then say well why was that the case i think part of the answer is is that it was tangled up with a particular idea of perhaps English nationhood um, that couldn't be separated from these constitutional um, questions because of essentially because of English constitutional um, history. And so once you delve deeper into that, you start the cultural question starts coming out. I don't think it comes out. I don't think that the, the way in which it was sometimes portrayed, particularly by a certain kind of Remainer that what was culturally driven driving Brexit was nostalgia for empire. Mm. The British Empire, I think it was much more about the history of English nationhood than that.
1: That seems a recurrent theme in some of the things you write about, though, this idea of of nationhood, which people are very, very attached to, and and the degree to which nationhood and democracy, I guess, need to be understood in parallel. I think they're... In my own head, at least, there's an aspect to this which is a bit like numbers. Everybody understands numbers up to a certain point. Everyone understands the difference between £10 and £20, but the difference between, say, £100 billion and £101 billion, vast though it is, is, is completely incomprehensible to people. Is, is there an aspect of democracy that's like that. People understand their own country. They understand what it means and vaguely how it works. But when you start thinking about supranational entities like the EU and about like some of the post-Bretton Woods uh, financial institutions you mentioned, the problem is that people really just don't understand what any of them are or how they work.
2: I think that's partly true. I think it's also true um, that the European Union is kind of caught between being partly successful at Mm. articulating a sense of purpose and a sense of identity at the European level that transcends previous identifications with individual nations. So that there are people who are citizens of the European Union who very much feel European Union citizens before that they feel citizens of their national democracy. But there are many other people who don't feel that, who, who still first and foremost identify as national citizens, members of a, a nation, let's say the British nation or the French um, nation, and they they think that they are better served in some sense by politics taking place at that national level rather than mm. at the supernational um, level. That you know, in to put it very crudely, that they're less likely to be losers at the national level than they are at the supra um, national um, level. So, in one sense, it would be easier for the European Union if one of those things weren't true. It's the difficulty arises because both of them are true. And I think you could see that then, you know, like why that became such a struggle in the United Kingdom over um, Brexit. Um, Because actually, although for a long time, the the general view of you know the uk's relationship with the european union and the, is that it had been actually you know like pretty pragmatic and very few people in this country were supposedly very keen on the european ideal or the european project but it turned out in practice once the referendum came about that there was a significant number of people in this country not anywhere near a majority but they were deeply deeply attached um to being european union citizens mm. and they absolutely didn't want to get, give it up and they weren't going to just give it up because they'd lost um, in a in a referendum, and then on the other side, you've got um, people who wanted to leave the, the European Union, and they found it an, an affront that the idea that they voted and been on the winning side in a national referendum that that wasn't the end of the matter, and it still had to be endlessly um, politically contested. So in some sense, I think that we you know we live in a in a political world where nationhood both matters; it's in some sense for some being surpassed. The problem is, is that really it's pretty difficult, I think, to get democratic politics to work that well, at least in the way in which we've historically experienced it, without there being a reasonably strong sense of nationhood in a particular democracy.
1: So is there an issue then when these essentially technocratic, supranational projects like the European Union fail to take these things into account? Uh, you write about how the euro uh, as an economic project means that the countries which are members of it, as you put it, have no monetary sovereignty. And you know, within my own admittedly extremely limited understanding of economics, that's always been my one of my reservations with the euro as an idea as well. But should the emotional aspect of that be taken into account as well by the people who make these policies that reasonably or otherwise... people kind of vaguely resent the idea of some slightly homogenous supranational idea being imposed on what they think of as their nation state?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the crucial question with the Eurozone is really now about whether there can be a fiscal union, because in one sense, you can say that actually, perhaps precisely because the architects of monetary union are back in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, didn't want to bet on the idea of a sense of European identity and European unity and a willingness of European, um, who were going to become European Union citizens to pay taxes that were then going to get spent in other member um, states. They didn't make any demands for shared fiscal sacrifices, part of monetary union, that there was a loss of monetary sovereignty, but there wasn't a loss of fiscal sovereignty Later, some rules, the Stability and Growth Pact, were you know, set up to um, restrict the amount of borrowing that any national government could engage in, but they weren't very strictly enforced. In fact, they were, in some sense, largely abandoned after the French and the Germans decided that they didn't apply to them um, in 2003. I think that what happened during the Eurozone crisis, though, was the it became clear the the limitations of having a monetary union or one of the things that became clear anyway was the limitations of having a monetary union without having a fiscal union mm. or at least of some kind but if you're going to basically say um, to to put it very schematically to to Germans that they've got to pay more taxes so that the Greek government can spend money on Greek pensions i mean you know which was obviously a sensitive issue in in, in Germany during the Greek Eurozone um, crisis. Then you need some sense in which the citizens of Germany think of themselves as sh- Europeans, having a shared identity um, with Greeks before that they think of themselves as Germans and before that they identify Greeks as as uh, 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 as Greeks. So I think that the issue for the eurozone is is that it's really where taxes are concerned. It's 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 when the the eurozone needs to tax its citizens in a collective sense in order to support each other's um, debt, that this issue of whether people really sufficiently identify at the European level and are willing to make sacrifices for their fellow citizens at the European level really comes into play. I'm not so convinced that you need... Um, a high level of European identity for some of the other commitments that the European Union has.
1: There is a line in your book where you talk about how Western democracies or in Western democracies, politicians, as you put it, will need to make palatable the likely sacrifices demanded of citizens, and that that is as things obviously change further, and especially um, as what we think of now as our energy infrastructure transitions, well, hopefully, indeed, to cleaner, greener energy... Is that still possible, though? I mean, absent something really obvious like, for example, a pandemic or a war in which I think people, as we have seen a couple of times in recent years, people will make sacrifices for a limited period. But what you're talking about, and I do want to bring in further the transition to energy uh, or to cleaner energy, is, is something quite fundamental and something quite disruptive and And this is the trouble with long-term planning, generally also something quite abstract. Is it it still possible to get people to make sacrifices um, in the service of something that isn't happening now or isn't happening yet?
2: I think, as you say, Andrew, it's a lot harder than the the sacrifices that were made during the pandemic. And in some sense, that's a bit counterintuitive because the sacrifices that we all made during the, the pandemic were... You know, incomprehensible to us. I would say, you know, like a few weeks before that, we were at before Indeed, we were yeah. um, actually um, making um, them. I think that the, the 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 thing with energy is twofold. First of all, is it just permeates all aspects of life in ways in which we don't often like dwell um, on. So, making sacrifices where energy is concerned is enormous. Actual is actually an enormous um, deal. And the second is, I think that if you go back to the 1970s, um, particularly in the United States, in a way you had a a president in Jimmy Carter who did try and pursue the politics of sacrifice line to deal with the um, energy crisis in the United States in the latter part of that um, decade. He tried really to turn it into a a moral crusade. Mm. Um, And it finished off his presidency. I know it's not the only thing that finished off his presidency. The Iran hostage crisis did so too, but it played a pretty significant part in, 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 in Jimmy Carter's um, difficulties. And I think that the general lesson that politicians in Western democracies, by the time that they got past the energy crisis into the 80s, took, we can't go back to that. We can't go back to the idea that the state is going to involve it so much, self, essentially in the rationing of energy. Um, and asking you know people to um, not only rationing it but asking people to use significantly le- le- uh, significantly less um, of it now I think that there's no escape from the return of that kind of politics um but how politicians are going to deal with that and I I'm not so sure. I mean, I think that they're going to go to a they're going to go a long way to try to they're going to go a long way to try to um, avoid it because the the collective memory in some sense of Western politicians is that it turned out so badly last time of doing it doing it that way, but the reality is that in the 1980s, it all you know they got away from that kind of politics. Um, because it was possible to bring on new oil supply from parts of the world, notably you know Alaska, the North Sea, Mexico, that were much friendlier, obviously, to Western interest than the Middle East had become by the, the 1970s, or indeed, in some sense, the Soviet Union um, was. Uh, if we look to the 2010s, when something of the same thing could have happened, given the you know, the, the height that oil prices hit in 2000 in the middle of 2008 the salvation if you want to use that language came from the shale oil boom in the in the in the United States you know but the shale oil boom well shale oil is still producing a lot of oil but whether it could really ramp up production in anything like the same volume that it did in the middle of the 2010s I, I think that's very very much open to to question so I don't think the way out that there was in the 1970s is there in the same way. And even if there was some significant increase in production somewhere, we're living in a world in which Asian demand is much, much more important um, than it was in the 1980s. And that is now true in relation to gas as well as in relation to oil, as we can see from the really sharp increase in China's gas consumption last year.
1: Well, on that thought, your, your book does have this idea that maybe renewables will do for China what coal did for Britain, what oil did for the United States. Is that necessarily, you know, a bad thing? Is it too much to hope that cleaner energy might lead to cleaner politics, if you like, and cleaner diplomacy? I, I just ask because I'm, I'm having an amount of trouble imagining anybody bothering to bomb a wind farm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think
1: that the
2: the good thing about um wind and, and 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 solar is obviously is is that you know the wind blows and the sun shines in the place where you are Now, obviously they don't uh, the the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine to the same degree you know like everywhere I'm sitting in britain we obviously do a lot better with wind than we do with than we do with sun the the difficulty where the geopolitics of green energy comes in is about the metals on which the infrastructure that green energy requires depends. Uh, and the twofold situation, as it is right now, is that China has a, you know, a disproportionate um, volume of the rare earth metals in the earth in China, uh, and that China has dominated or is dominating the production and extraction supply chains around those metals, not just actually in China, but elsewhere um, as well. Now, I think it's possible to argue that um, if you had a really serious, um, you know, national project in some sense in the United States, uh, as I think that both Joe Biden and Trump before him were committed to, to bringing about of mining for metals, that that might change. Um, I, I don't think that the distribution of metals in the Earth is probably comparable to the. In some sense, arbitrariness of the distribution of hydrocarbons um, on this Earth, um, but at the same time, is that how long it would take to challenge China's dominance here? Is very much I would have thought open to question. And again, it's 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 just not it's just not going to happen um, very quickly. Now, I don't think that the green energy transition is going to take place that quickly. So. In practice, I think what we're going to see is that the old geopolitics of fossil fuel energy is going to coexist with the new geopolitics of green energy. And where the old geopolitics is concerned, China is in a certain disadvantage, certainly compared to the United States, because it has a much higher foreign energy dependency than the United States does. And ever since China's economic growth took off in the late 90s and the early 2000s, then Chinese leaders have worried about deeply about China's energy security and the ability that the United States has as the world's dominant naval power in an emergency, essentially, to shut China off from access to oil imports coming from the Middle East and Africa.
1: And as you were putting the book together, did you find yourself ruminating much on those... Uh, I... The, the, the butterfly wing moments, if you like, which could have sent us down an entirely different parallel history. Uh, I mean, h- how near run a thing is it? You do write a, quite a lot about Syria as a place where a lot of your themes not together... Is there, for example, a a huge counterfactual there? So Obama doesn't back down from his red lines after the chemical attack on Ghouta in 2013, which maybe means either no refugee ex-flows or much smaller ones, which maybe means... No Russian intervention, maybe no ISIS, maybe even no Brexit or Trump. I mean, how how very much easily could we have ended up in not necessarily a better, but a much much different place than than where we are?
2: This is a really interesting moment, um, Andrew. Uh, that one um, because Obama himself, as I say in the disorder, thought that it was you know in some sense the most significant moment of his presidency because he. He saw himself as standing up to the foreign policy blob, as he thought, you know, like about it and saying he was a different kind of president and that he was a Pacific president, as he wanted to think about it, that he was his own man and he wasn't going to listen to this um, advice. Um, I think what's really interesting, though, is that for all Obama's sort of and self-aggrandizement about that moment. Is that if you look at the sequence of events by which it happened, it's a series of accidents. Really, it's a series of accidents that begin in Britain, and because David Cameron decides he has to hold a vote in the House of Commons um, on British participation, Ed Miliband, who's the leader of the Labour Party, then decides that Labour are going to oppose it. I don't think he actually seriously wanted to oppose it on a second vote, which was supposed to be coming, but I, I, you know, it, it doesn't. Maybe you got some arithmetic wrong or something. Anyway, there wasn't a second vote. And then the, as the the upshot of that is, as Obama decides, he has to ask the U.S. Congress whether he can be is authorised to do it. And then once it becomes clear, it's not going to go through. it, The vote isn't going to happen. It, there's not enough votes in the in the U.S. House of Congress. He pulls the plug um, on the on the on the thing. The second thing, though, is what you said is is that it's it is a momentous moment because um, a lot of things follow from that, including I would say, you know, the start of a series of moments or series of episodes where the response of the Obama administration is to say we have to cooperate with Russia in the Middle East. And the first of them is essentially getting Putin's help to get Assad to get rid of his chemical weapons. That is essentially the the justification that Obama has for why it's not necessary to go ahead um, with the attacks that he's promised, because although the red line about chemical weapons has been crossed, actually Putin's got Assad to get rid of them. And then you know, with not too much, 18 months or so, a bit less than that, then Putin's played a pretty significant role in getting the Iran nuclear deal negotiated. Um, but then, as we know, the response of, 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 um, of Putin um, to you know, what is really his growing influence on Middle Eastern matters by this point, by the se- autumn of 2015, is to begin the Russian military intervention in Syria, which he does of September, um, of that. Um year, and then by the next summer, then you know the Obama administration is talking about and indeed beginning to plan joint military action with Russia against ISIS. Uh, it's only in the in the very last months of his presidency, um, that 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 falls, that that falls um away. So I think that it isn't just that there's a path not taken directly in the Syria um war um itself, it's it's also that there's a a really important Russia story that's bound up with that moment in terms um, of the way in which accommodation with Russia in the Middle East becomes the path that the Obama administration takes in its last few years um, in office, only right at the end to pull back um, from that. And then we move into a situation where during the the Trump presidency, that in some sense American policies caught between Trump's, on the one hand, I think, desire for some rapprochement with Russia, and on the other hand, wanting to get tough with Russia in Europe about the, the gas issues, particularly, and particularly about um, Nord Stream. And that's part of a story, I think, in which the, politics of, the geopolitics of Russia in the Middle East become much more entangled with the geopolitics of Russia in Europe.
1: If we think back to that moment, though, Syria in 2013 and what the United States doesn't do, are there any actually useful lessons from a moment like that? Or is the difficulty and perhaps the reason why we keep making broadly similar mistakes is that every situation is just different enough that what we might have taken away from a previous crisis doesn't necessarily apply to the next one?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing we've got to remember about that moment is is Obama could have carried through on his promise, like red line, red line crossed, military um, action, but that didn't mean that Obama had a, the the Obama administration had a a military strategy for dealing with the Syrian civil war, Um, is is that there were obvious reasons um, why the Obama administration didn't want militarily to commit in Syria, you know, it wanted regime change in in Damascus, but it didn't want that regime change to be brought about by American military intervention. And why was that the case? Well, the Arab Spring, the Syrian civil war, was beginning in like two thousand and eleven. That's the year in which Iraq, sorry, Obama was getting finally getting American troops out of um, Iraq. You know, um, Barack Obama had, in significant part, won the Democratic nomination in two thousand and eight, and then won the general election. That year, because he was the candidate who was against the Iraq War, he was the candidate who wasn't going to um, get the United States into more stupid wars, as he presented it. Don't do stupid things. That um, that mantra. Um, he, he was supposedly concentrated on what was supposed to be the good war, the you know the Afghanistan War, even though he was about to start moving in a different direction on that on that war um, too. So he could have carried through his promise. But what would then have happened? I mean, part of the answer might have been that it would have taken the United States further into the Syrian civil war. Um, uh, That once military action had been used in that way, then it would have been, well, we need more of it, because what was the point of it if it was just sending a lesson to Assad that didn't really make any um, difference? So there's a a whole other set of possibilities. Well, yeah, there's there's a number of possibilities that I think might have ensued, that would have made the world pretty different than, or might have made the world anyway, different than what it is now. But it's quite difficult to see what they are without knowing what Obama would have done at the moment um, of, of crisis. Would it have just been, okay, we've done this, but we're absolutely going no further? Or would it have been, we're in here, something else happens in response to that? Um, and now we can't get and and now we can't get out. I, I think that's pretty difficult. I th- I think that's pretty difficult to tell. I
1: mean, we are coming to the end of our time, um, and I did want to ask you. It seems an especially good question to put to somebody who has thought as long and hard as you have about how we got here, um, as to where we might go. And I, I realize. Given the grand scheme of things, this seems like a somewhat idle question. But I'm I'm just wondering if if you're able to hold on to much in the way of optimism, or are you with? And he is a, a character you cite in your text, uh, Polybius, the ancient Greek historian who. I think if I boil down his thesis uh, somewhat glibly was basically that look everything destroys itself eventually. Yeah,
2: but everything in Polybius also starts again. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's a rise and fall cycle and the f- rise is part of it as well as the 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 fall. I mean generally you know I'm not particularly um optimistic in the sense that I think that we face um, the world faces like enormous challenges, not least the energy question. The imperative to get away from fossil fuel energies, the difficulty of getting away from fossil fuel um, energies, and we have to live in that world where both those things um, are are are, um, are true. I mean, the thing that encourages me is that I think that there's just much less complacency around than there was even even five years um, ago. I think that there's a a, um, a greater willingness to see that actually there aren't just policy fixes and to a lot of these problems where we can just pull some lever and say actually you know, problem solved we we move on, um, a sense in which actually some sacrifice might now be accepted. I mean in that sense I would say that the pandemic has. Has changed the the political landscape. I mean, I don't want to underestimate for a moment um, how destructive, as well, the sacrifices that we've all made have been for many people. So I'm, I'm not trying to lessen the impact of the politics of of sacrifice. But we're not in the same place as we were before the the pandemic. We, in some sense, we we we've had to get more serious. And I think that that's a better thing than I think the complacency that characterised much of the post-Cold War world.
1: Helen Thompson, thank you for joining us. Uh, Helen Thompson's book is Disorder. It's out now from Oxford University Press. I'm Andrew Muller. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us.